0: welcome to the podcast for Sunday, June 26th, 2016. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our son Ezra just graduated from college this May. He got his degree in business management from Judson University in Elgin, Illinois. It wasn't the only college that he attended. His first two years were spent at a small Presbyterian school in western North Carolina called Montreat College, and then he transferred his for his junior and senior years uh, to Judson. We had a couple of trips to Chicago in order to visit him, and Uh, One of the first times we went, we did all of the touristy things that one does when they go to the Windy City. Uh, We went to take pictures in front of the Bean at the uh, Millennial Park, the large reflective sculpture. By the way, I didn't even know until just this past week. It's not called the Bean. That's just the nickname. The actual uh, sculpture is called Cloud Gate. We went to Navy Pier. Our, Our daughter Emily and her boyfriend John rode the famous giant Ferris wheel at Navy Pier. Uh, we ventured up to the sky deck, 103 floors above downtown Chicago. Former Sears Tower, uh, inside this clear glass box that's on the outside of the building. So you can look down and see all of the downtown of Chicago. Uh, we even took a river cruise to look at some of the amazing architecture all along the Chicago River. And we saw many interesting buildings along the way. Uh, there's, uh, here's a river view of the Willis Tower, which is home of the Sky Deck, formerly Sears Tower. It's the, two, uh, it's the building in black there. Um, we sailed under a bridge where a couple was having wedding photos taking, which was kind of cool to see. And then we got this amazing view just outside the river looking back at the city from Lake Michigan. But I'm also a huge art fan, so we had to go to the Art Institute of Chicago, And one of the pieces that I was most excited about seeing in person was A Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grande Jatte by Georges-Pierre Seurat. Uh, Completed in 1886, Seurat took over two years to paint this 10-foot-wide canvas. It's one of his most amazing and most famous works of art. It's a classic example of pointillism. Uh, Here's what the edges in the bottom right corner look like. Uh, up close. Just various dashes and dots of color that when you see them up close, it doesn't look like anything, but when you see it from behind, it's, it's kind of amazing. Well, I first learned about this piece of art from the 1986 movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Any other Ferris Bueller fans here? Yeah, Matthew Broderick's uh, classic work. And in one of the scenes from the film, Ferris and his two friends go to this very museum in Chicago. It's among the other things that they do on Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Well, one of my favorite parts about this art museum um, collection of scenes was when Ferris's best friend Cameron stood staring at a Sunday afternoon on the island of La Grande. The cinematography is wonderful. It's a wonderful example of how so many are drawn into pointillism in general, but into this particular masterpiece in specific. So Cameron just started staring at the painting, and each shot by the cameraman would take us closer and closer, each successive view. And our eyes began to move with him as we're going closer and closer, until finally all we see is some color and the wonderful texture of the canvas on which the painting was created. Now, if this was the only view that you had of the painting, would you have any idea what it was about? Of course not, because you're too close, right? You're, you're seeing the amazing detail of the canvas, but you need to be able to see it from this perspective. You need some distance to see what the big picture is all about. So keep this in mind as we begin the fifth and final week of our series, Survival Stories of Hope. From the Bible. Each week for the past month or so, we've been looking at characters from Scripture who find themselves in some challenging and difficult situations. And we've been trying to discover how it is that they made it through those situations, how hope gave them wings to soar, how they became survivors. This week we've come to one of the more lesser-known characters in the series, the widow of Zarephath. And i want to go back to this last clip from the art scene in Ferris Bueller. This is that little girl's mouth seen very close up. This is where our story begins today in Scripture. This is what the widow was faced with. All she could see was the fact that she and her son were smack dab in the middle of a drought and they were down to their last supplies the very little meager that they had left she knew the end was near and that's when she encountered the prophet elijah first kings 17 beginning at verse 8 then the word of the lord came to elijah saying go now to zarephath which belongs to sidon and live there for i have commanded a widow there to feed you so elijah set out and he went to a town and the widow there was gathering sticks he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel so that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little jug of oil. I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. You could say that her situation was dire. Actually, grave might be a more appropriate word. This literally could have been their last supper together as as a mother and son. All she could see was this. This is the grim reality of her present situation. And who is this one who has the audacity to ask for her very last? Elijah the prophet. Now, we need to take a step back for a moment so that we can begin to see the bigger picture, a picture that this widow had no way of knowing. She couldn't. She couldn't have seen it from the perspective that she was in that moment. But if we're going to see how this story of impending doom becomes a story of hope, then it's a perspective that we have to be aware of. We don't have to go back very much further in our story from 1 Kings. We're going to go to the end of chapter 16, beginning at verse 29. <clears throat> in the 38th year of King Asa of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. Ahab, son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, he took as his wife Jezebel, daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. Ahab did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than had all the kings of Israel who were before him. Not exactly something you want on your resume, right? You got God more mad than anyone else that had ever been before you. Nevertheless, that's Ahab. And to top things off, in the very next verse, we're told that he sacrifices two of his children to a foreign god as part of a new building project in Jericho. This was a, a common, albeit gruesome, practice among countries outside of Israel. There was a god, Molech. That they said, uh, would, if you gave him your children, if you killed your children to this God, he would bless you in an abundance way. Because you were offering something that was so valuable. And the king of Israel chose to do this. Killed two of his own children. Terrible. When the people of Israel first asked their pastor Samuel for a king, right? It was just God, their king. And they they said, we wanted to be a king like everyone else. We want to have a king in flesh and blood that we can see and that can lead us into battle. And and Samuel said, be careful what you wish for. If this human king does not follow the ways of the Lord, then he will lead all of you astray. And because of this, because of this Israelite king's intermarriage with a Phoenician princess because she had grown up worshiping foreign gods, including the god Baal. Her new and loving husband now decides to make Baal worship an official state religion. Are you wondering how God might have felt about this? Because I'm thinking not so good, right? When we get to chapter 17, we meet for the first time the prophet Elijah. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. This is the very first time we meet the prophet Elijah. We don't know anything about him. We, We weren't there for his commissioning. His name literally means Yahweh is my God. And he's about to set the tone for the larger theme that's taking place, Yahweh versus Baal. Baal was the Phoenician storm god. He was the bringer of rain, the god of fertility and harvest. So for this upstart prophet to waltz up to the king of Israel and challenge his newly embraced deity, well, that got a lot of people's attention. Who had more power, the Lord God Almighty or the storm God Baal? And we're about to find out because Elijah has predicted a drought. Now, we here in Southern California know a little bit about droughts, right? We've, we're in the middle of one right now. It's part of our current reality. We have to conserve and save water and curtail some of the activities that we may had done in the past when water was more abundant. But in biblical times, drought wasn't just seen as some kind of natural phenomenon. It was understood in the ancient world as a divine curse. Divine curse that God was doing it or the gods were doing it on purpose. And when uh, when, when Elijah challenges Ahab, he's also challenging his role because the king was seen as the main provider of fertility. Rain in the ancient world was the responsibility of the king. Kind of like how today the economy is kind of the responsibility of the president, right? Whenever the economy is good, oh, it's the president and his policies are so good. When the economy is bad, oh, it's the president leading us down this road, right? Good or bad, the economy is the responsibility of the president. Well, in the ancient days, annual rainfall was the responsibility of the king. For good or for ill. So I guess this king felt like he needed a little extra mojo, wanted to make sure that he had more than enough rain for his people. So he goes over, we might say, to the dark side and signs up with the god Baal, the storm god, the fertility god. Verse 2. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Go from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the Wadi Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the wadi, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the wadi. But after a while, the wadi dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now, we don't know whether or not God told Elijah to proclaim a drought or if Elijah just got so fed up with what the king was doing uh, with the foreign god Baal that he decided ...to call for a divine drought. Either way, it happened just as Elijah said. The drought came and it hit the people hard. And then God provides, has creation provide for Elijah. He lives in the wilderness, the Wadi Cherith. He was fed by the ravens, those scavengers. He drinks from the river. We know about ravens here in the Antelope Valley, right? Ravens are one of the few creatures that are able to survive... ...even in the harshest of conditions... But after a while, when there's no rain, even the rivers drive up. And so Elijah had to move once again. And that's where we started with our reading this morning from 1 Kings 17, verse 8. God sends Elijah to a foreign land, to the town of Zarephath in Sidon, because there's no food or water in Israel. They have to go out of the country. Zarephath was a Phoenician city located 14 miles north of Tyre and 8 miles south of Sidon. Today, it's in Lebanon at the site of the modern city, Sarephath. Zarephath functioned as a commercial port and an industrial center. It was there that textiles and pottery, agricultural produce and purple dye, of which Phoenicia was so famous, that's where they were produced. And the big connection here is that Elijah is moving directly into the land of Baal. He's moving out of Israel into Baal's home turf, so to speak. Now, had we just started reading this story at verse 10, when Elijah comes in and demands food and water from a drought-stricken area with a poor and almost starving widow and her son, we would think, who raised him, right? What kind of manners is that? You don't take a woman, a, a, a widow and her son's last meal, no matter who you are, right? But we need to remember two things. First, it was God who sent him there. And God told him, there is a widow that would provide for you. And second, the widow's view of her predicament is just the close-up view. The bigger picture is that question of whether God or Baal has more power. Now, you may wonder, what difference does it make where we start in the story? Well, the widow may only be able to see how little that she and her son has right now. It's like looking at this view, the close-up of the girl's mouth in that picture. But God sees the bigger picture. It's a picture that includes but isn't limited to the widow and her son's situation and their struggle to survive, but it also encompasses so much more of what's happening on a larger scale with many more individuals and their families and the communities. This battle for who truly gives life in all its abundance. Is it God or Baal? So Elijah asked for food and water. The widow says... I don't, we're in a drought. You know that, right? There's very little water, and I only have this little bit of meal and a little bit of oil left in a jug. After that, there's nothing left. In fact, this was going to be our last meal, and we were going to wait until we died. Verse 13, Elijah said to her, do not be afraid. Go, do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of meal will not be emptied and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord brings rain on the earth. His first words to her are, do not be afraid. This is one of the most common phrases you'll find in all of scripture. It's what angels often tell the recipients of their messengers. It's what Jesus often tells his disciples. It's what God tells those whom he has called in the Old and the New Testament. It's what the prophets tell those who are in need. Do not be afraid. Why? Because God is real and God is alive and God cares about you and about those in need. So, Elijah tells the widow at Zarephath that God will provide for them. That that handful of meal, that little bit of oil, it will be enough. It'll be enough. And I think this is a message not just for her, but for us today as well. God can take our little, and God can make it enough. It's a puzzling lesson for us to learn, because in a world of haves and have-nots, we often know what enough is, and usually it's not what we have. Not quite. We don't quite have enough. Just a little bit more would be enough, right? But God measures quantities different than we do. And our little in the hands of the Almighty God can be enough. Verse 15, she went and did as Elijah said, so that she, as well as he and her household, ate for many days. The jar of meal was not empty, neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. The storm god Baal, he couldn't stop the drought from coming. But Yahweh, the one true God, provided sustenance for this foreign woman and her household. And she trusted the Lord despite not being able to see the bigger picture. Now, there's one more part of this story that we have to touch on before we finish. Uh, Verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. His illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Now, in biblical times, a woman only had security if she was connected to a man, if she was married, or if her husband had died if she had a son who then could provide for her. Without both, women were extremely vulnerable. And and in fact, that's why so many uh, passages in the Old Testament, Jesus is talking about caring for the orphans and the widows, for those women that had no one to provide for them. This woman had lost her husband, and now she was about to lose her son, and so she decides to blame Elijah. Verse 18. She then said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. So just as drought was considered in ancient times to be a divine curse, the death of someone was also seen as God's judgment. And this widow believes that Elijah, having him stay at her house well, God suddenly remembered, oh yeah, there's this one woman, maybe I'll do something to her as well. So thanks a lot, she says to Elijah. As if he had never come there, God wouldn't have remembered her or known about her at all and she could have just gone on with her life the way it was. But if there's something that we know about the story, it's that she only has a limited view, right? She can only see this amount and there is a bigger picture. So, Elijah takes the child, he prays to the Lord, he cries out for life to return to the boy, and then we get to verse 22. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. The life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and gave him to his mother. Then Elijah said, see, your son is alive. So the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true." So God hears the cries of Elijah, God restores the boy to life, and this Phoenician widow, this foreign woman, becomes a believer of the God of Israel. Now again, if we're looking only at just the miracle of this boy who was either dead or close to to death coming back to life, then we're also missing the bigger picture, The bigger picture, beyond the meal and the oil, the food in a drought, beyond bringing this boy back to life, is that God is God, and God can be trusted. Who sends rain and gives food and raises the dead? Not Baal, that's for sure. Who takes our little and makes it much? Not Baal. Who is the one who is alive and active in the world around us? Not Baal. It's Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God who transcends boundaries and brings compassion and power even to a foreign widow. That is the bigger picture. Now, initially, I wanted to finish this series on stories of hope with this particular woman. That she reminds us, or speaking for myself, she reminds me that I don't have to have it all together all the time. Part of being human is knowing that there are many times in our lives when things don't go according to plan. Like, we think we know where things are going in our life, and then suddenly something changes and everything is messed up. Anybody been there before? Yeah, and if your hand's not raised, it's coming soon, okay? That's just part of life. Times when it feels like everything is just going wrong and we get overwhelmed and we can't see the big picture. It's all we can do to just get up in the morning and keep taking one step ahead of, it, of each other. And we see the little bit that we've got left and we know that there's no possible way it's going to be enough. This little bit of money or health or relationship or whatever it may be, the little bit that each of us has right now see, the story of the widow of Zarephath is important because sometimes this is all we see. This is the only view that we have. We can't see the bigger picture. We have no clue how life is going to work itself out. And sometimes we begin to give in to that and be overcome with fear. And that's a scary place to be. But the good news, friends, is that we don't have to be able to see the big picture because God sees the big picture. God knows what we're going through. God sees our heart. God hears our cries. God knows those intimate times of desperation or even those seasons where we just feel sort of lost. The story of the widow of Zarephath is a story that says when all seems lost, there is still hope. The too little that we think we have, when we turn it over to God, becomes enough to see us through When we're down to the last bits of oil and meal, when we think that we're about to lose it all, it actually can be enough, that little that we have, if we turn it over to God. God can provide for every situation. Personally, I've been thinking a lot about our property this past week, and as I've been wrestling with this story and letting it sort of marinate in my soul, and we have this property on 25th Street and Rancho Vista, and Eight years ago, when we really got started on the building campaign, uh, we thought we would be a lot farther than we are today on this new building, right? Especially since we haven't built anything in the new building, we just have the property. It's great, 14 and a half or so acres, but we haven't built it. We're just paying off the the, the mortgage on the property. We even went through a few months this past fall where the extra mile donations that people have been giving didn't meet Uh, the mortgage payments. And it may look and feel like we just, we only have a very little bit. And yet I believe that God can make it enough. I don't know where that journey is going to go. I don't know when. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I believe that God will guide us if we trust God to take our little and make it enough. My brothers and sisters in Christ, don't let this be all that you see. Whether it's in your own life in the life of this church or the life of our country. This may be your current reality, but just know it's not the bigger picture. Let God handle the bigger picture. Trust in God's grace and provision. Turn your worries, your fears, and your cares over to the Lord, and you just might be amazed at what God can do. Thanks be to God for this witness of this woman, this powerful story and the life he has called each of us to live together. Amen.